0: Thank God. He is a God worthy of our praise. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to Luke chapter number 13. Luke chapter number 13. And uh, like I said in our opening prayer, I've been wrestling with this passage of Scripture for quite some time. And and, uh, I've done so, and so I I think I want to do this in two weeks. But I want to look at a parable, a lot like we did last week, A parable of the Lord Jesus, and I want to look at the parable of the barren fig tree in Luke chapter number 13. And I want to talk to you this morning on this subject, what we see in a barren tree. What we see in a barren tree. And I want to pick up reading in our text in verse number 1, but we'll mainly focus in verses 6 through 9. It's going to be our text, but... I want to start reading in verse number 1 of chapter number 13. Luke 13, verse number 1. And there were present at that season some that told him that him there is Jesus. This is in the context of Jesus preaching or teaching a long discourse. And someone interrupts here. So uh, some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men? that dwelt in Jerusalem, I tell you nay. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Verse 6. And he spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he to the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. What we see in a barren Tree. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, God, as we look upon your infallible, inerrant, wonderful, illuminating, powerful word, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and give us eyes. God, we know from the word of God that your word, it says, is discerned by the Spirit. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us spiritual eyes receptive eyes to what Your Word has to say. God, I pray that He would make proper application, that He would show us the danger of this passage, the threat of these words from the lips of the loving Lord Jesus. and May we heed them this morning. May they grasp and strangle our attention to cause us to do self and heart inspection God I pray you'd speak to your heart speak to my heart continue as you've done all week to preach this text to my own life my own heart God I can stick on all the fruit on the outward appearance to make it seem as though I bear fruit but Heavenly Father owner of my vineyard you know the truth you know who I am You know the fruit in my life. I can't hide it from you. So, Father, I pray that I, as well as these hearers, would take heed to this parable. Father, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. There are quite a few objects that carry much significance in the story of the Bible. You take, for example, animals. Animals are significant in the sacrificial system. You know, the, the turtle dove, the, the, the doves, the, the, the bullock, the, the, uh, the lamb, the, the goat, all of these animals bear a striking uh, message in God's Word. It's significantly in the sacramental system. They're significantly, not only in and of themselves in their character, but in what they communicate you think about the objects in the tabernacle in the temple. If you, It's a wonderful study. Every, every part of the tabernacle and going into the temple, it has very great significance. The curtains, the, the rods, the snuffers, the, the altars, the basins, the, the vessels, all of these communicate truths through the object of themselves. They tell, they tell the story of redemption. If it's if it's played out and looked at closely. But one of the most significant objects in the Bible that communicate truth are trees. You go all the way back to the the early chapters of Genesis where God gives His command to Adam and Eve that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Also in in that garden, there was a tree of eternal life. God would, after they had sinned, God wanted to make it clear they were not to have part in that tree after their sin. So in the early dawn of Revelation, we find that there is a tree of great significance all the way to the end. In the book of Revelation, God talks about a tree along the crystal sea that bears The leaves that are the healing to the nations. All manner of leaves. He talks about a tree from beginning to end. Trees are significant in the scripture. Of course, a slam in the middle of the word of God. In the revelation of God's word. We have a very important tree. The tree of Calvary. It's at the centerpiece of God's redemption. Peter talks about how that he bare in his body our sins on the tree trees play a very large role in the scripture even in the narrative story of jesus trees come up again and again do you remember the calling of nathaniel how that jesus relayed to nathaniel that he saw him under the tree and nathaniel's reaction was to follow jesus there's a lot unsaid in in what is taking place in there but evidently this sighting of Jesus of Nathanael under a tree was a jaw-dropping revelation because it caused Nathanael to yield to Christ and believe all to follow him. You remember Zacchaeus? A wee little man was Zacchaeus. You know he climbed the sycamore tree. Jesus, uh, Nathanael was seen under a tree. Zacchaeus was seen up a tree. And then Jesus resorted to pray among the trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. The olive trees, they, they provide a backdrop into the intercession of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane. I can't believe, I can't pronounce that word. I pastored Gethsemane Baptist Church for years. But Jesus was even, uh, Jesus even cursed a tree. In that final week, remember, we talked about that last year. As he goes in Jerusalem, he cursed a barren fig tree. A story very similar in its application to our text today. But in our text, Jesus is teaching a lesson using a tree as a parable. You remember last week I talked about a parable. A parable is an earthly story, uh, a, a story that is easily latched onto in the objective uh, material world in which we live in, but it has a significant spiritual meaning to us. You know, uh, Jesus is not in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is not teaching us about horticulture. He's not teaching us uh, better homes and gardens tips on how to grow profitable fig trees. That's not what He's doing here. He's teaching us far more. This parable from the lips of the Lord Jesus is mixed with gravity and grace. It's filled with caution and compassion. In this barren tree, He calls us to take a hard look at ourselves. To understand what Jesus is saying, I want to break down these verses into four descriptions, two of which we'll look at this week, two of which I want to reserve for next week. So, the first description I want you to see is the parable's origin. If we're going to understand what Jesus is saying in this isolated parable, then we cannot divorce it from its context. This parable of Jesus is in response to a conversation during his teaching. So let's look a closer, let's take a closer look at the surrounding verses. Now remember, chapter and verse designations in your Bible. For example, I told you to turn to chapter number 13. I told you to look at verses 1 through 9. Chapter 13 in of itself, the number, and the numbering on these verses are not inspired by God they're not there as divine breakups in truth this is a long-running text a continuous story that Luke gives us of the account of Jesus life and his teaching and so these breakups between chapter 12 and chapter 13 they are artificial at best and so in order to look at the context we need to also kind of take in mind chapter number 12 now Chapter number twelve is a long discourse. If you look back, if you've got a red letter edition, which I kind of like, but if you've got a red letter edition, you'll find that in verse number twelve, chapter number twelve, there's a lot of red ink, and there's a lot of verses. It's comprised of fifty nine verses. So I'm not going to go over all of chapter number twelve. So I'm just going to look at the end of that passage and what's taking place there. Jesus is finishing a long. A long discourse. And, and so we will. F- I want us to focus on that last section. My Bible tells me, if you if you look closely at maybe your chapter designations, uh, from verses 54 through 59, I've got a study Bible here, it usually breaks up and gives you some kind of sense as to what these collective verses are indicating. You have titles in your Bible. Those are helpful sometimes. And the title or the, 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 the kind of heading over verses 54 through 59 is discerning the times in my Bible. I don't know what it says in yours. It could be different. But we can take from that that Jesus is talking about end times, future events, and how difficult and perilous they will be. He notes in verses 54 and 55 how that we naturally have the ability and have learned that we can look at the sky and discern some certain things about the weather just by, before it happens, just by looking at the skies. For example, 54, when you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say, there cometh a shower. And so it is. When you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be heat, and it cometh to pass. So Jesus is saying, hey, you look and you see the signs in the sky and you can to some degree, dependably, predict what is about to happen. The, the events that will happen in the future. Then, he look, at, then look at verse number uh, uh, 56. Ye hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it? that she do not discern this time so Jesus is saying prophetically you can see the future by the environment around you. you can kind of tell what's fixing to happen by what you see around you well how can you not see that in the events going around in the world you know there's a point to that we we read the Bible you read the prophetic parts you can see the, corrobor, uh, the collaboration or the correlation between the two. Jesus is saying, Why can't ye, these hearers in front, why can't you see the times? Why can't you sense what's going on? And then he asks, Why can you not discern the times in the same way? He is speaking of the coming persecution, which he talks about in verse 58 and 59. But I want you to key in to verse number 57. Look at what he says. He just told them, You hypocrites. You can know this in the sky, but you can't see it in the perilous times around you. But look at what he says in verse 57. He elaborates. He goes further. Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? He said you can judge the sky, and rightly so. You should be able to judge God the times by what's happening around you but then he says why can't you judge yourselves why can't you look at your own selves this is key to what Jesus gives us in in chapter number 13 1 through 9 it's key hoping to give some sort of reply uh, concerning the the times in which they live someone voices a current event. You ever had someone meet you at the water cooler? This is kind of water cooler. Hey, did you hear about so and so? Did you hear about the dogs winning? Man, I, you know, I had to poke a little bit. Did you hear about, did you hear about what happened in, in Washington D.C.? You've seen that? All the, I don't know, something about files founding about a guy's car. It's, it's, it's a water cooler talk. It's kind of thing, it's kind of things that are current news and this person Maybe he's voicing something we really don't know. To be honest with, you, we really don't know why the motivation is. But he says, hey, Jesus, did you hear about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? Now, I gotta admit, the first time I read that, I was thinking that they are saying this because they wanted to elicit from Jesus a little bit of pity for the Galileans. Maybe even a rebuke for the oppressive Roman a rule of that time. Ah, but Jesus knows the hearts. Jesus knows the hearts. He knows the hearts of all men and he could see through their speech into the heart that motivated that statement. The mindset of these were that they had died such a gruesome death because they had received their just reward for their sins. Look at what Jesus said. Suppose you, verse 2, and 13. Suppose you that these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans because they suffered such things. That's, he knows why they said that. I may not. You may not. But he knows exactly why they made the statement. Jesus is saying, Do you honestly think that they encountered this horrific, violent attack because of their sins? Yeah, that's what they did with Job. I was talking with Pastor Trask. Last night, and and, uh, he was talking about his series through Job and and all of the back and forth between Job's friends and Job himself. Uh, To sum up, uh, myriads of conversation. They're pointing to every reason they think this is happening to Job and they have no clue. These people are doing the same thing. I know why that happened to the Galileans. It's because of their sin. It's because of what they have done see, Jesus knows their hearts and knows exactly why they said such a thing. And see, uh, isn't that, but isn't that just like us? Don't we have a tendency to do that all the time? We look at the happenings of others and, well, you know, you, know, you live that kind of life. I'm just as guilty, man. You know, if you live that kind of life, you can expect that. You know, that, that's what's going to happen. You know, you know, if you, if you live that wild side, if you, if you make this such and such your goal, well, that's the kind of thing that happens to folks like that. We reserve our most harsh deductions of judgment for those we inspect with our eyes and not on our own hearts. Oh, it's grace for my heart. It's mercy for me. But it's so harsh on everyone else. Jesus sees straight through and informs them that their sinfulness is no less. I tell you, except you repent, you that made the statement, you that interjected, your heart is suggesting that you're better in your sin and you're standing before God before these that were slain. Except you repent. You take heart, stop. Except you repent, you will perish. Jesus did not confirm nor deny the sinfulness of the Galileans. it could be right they they actually could this person could be right in what they're saying he getting maybe it could well that their iniquity had reached a breaking point and God had judged him but that's not for them to say the proper view of this violent attack or even further what Jesus said or those 18 upon which the tower of Siloam fell and slew them think he that they had were more sin- sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Not just a violent attack, but also just those strange occurrences of life that take life. In both cases, whether it be intended violence or unintended death, he stops them cold and it says, Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Just because something bad happens to someone else, it is no indication of their standing. The reality is, our response is, but by the grace of God go I. How easily that could be me. A similar presumption was made by Jesus' disciples in John 9 when finding a blind man. You remember that passage? They found this blind man and they go to Jesus and they they highbrow look at him and, and they make their own deduction. Master. Who did sin, this man or his parents, that he be born blind? Boy, they got it all figured out, don't they? They've they, they, they given Jesus an A or B. We know it's either this or this. What is it? Jesus shows them that their presumption was wrong. Jesus answered in John 9, 3, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest to him, although his disciples did not land the rebuke that we have here, this, this torrid rebuke from Jesus to repent, yet at the same time, there is more than meets the eye in every circumstance of life. And as we cross these, these moments in life of these happenings, as we look upon them, we are to not cast our... You know that whole passage about judge not lest ye be judged? This is the heart of it. I can't judge things I don't know. I don't know, but I can't judge me that I do know. I can't turn that heavy eye, that, that beam in my eye, and I can turn it on myself instead of the speck in the other's eye. Jesus' response in 3 through 5 is, this, is, is in line with verse 57. You can't judge yourself. Can't you judge yourself rightly? The imperative is judgment and heart inspection. Instead of trying to deduce why things, why events happen to others, our question should be, why did this not happen to me? How is my own heart? What's my own heart condition? Listen, if sin rules your life, this is a call to do an about face and repent of it. Jesus is calling to us here today. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Notice second of all. This is my last point for today. Not only the parable's origin, but the perceptive owner. So now, now, Jesus takes this this sentiment of perception. Why can't you judge yourselves? Except you repent. Except you repent. Then he turns to this parable and says that God perceives all. There's an owner that perceives everything. Look at what he said. He spake a parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and he sought fruit thereon and found none. Here is someone, here is this story that Jesus has given. He speaks of a landowner who planted a fig tree in his vineyard this being a vineyard which is used for the placement of grapes and vines for uh, for wine or whatever the case may be. It's for the harvesting there. Planting a tree in such a place is kind of a bit of a risky move. It being a fig tree uh, also uh, provides a shade. A planting of a tree produces shade. It's a place that the, the owner can come while he's inspecting his vineyard to sit and find shade. You know, uh, grapevines have to be in the sunshine. They have to absorb that photosynthesis in the leaves to produce the sweet fruit that is in, in those grapes. But the shade tree is just for the owner. It's just for him. And then it being a fig tree also provides luscious fruit to all those who shade under its branches, this tree was planted for the pleasure of the owner, his comfort, his delight. This tree was to be a delight to the owner of the vineyard. As we know from verse number 7, this owner, he, he afforded this, this tree and this vineyard a wine dresser, someone like a keeper, a foreman, someone... That is, tending to the field on the behalf of the owner. He's keeping it. He's, he's doing all the things to make it profitable, to make it, uh, to produce fruit. He afforded a portion of the vineyard. Notice, it's normally a rich, well-watered part of the garden. The vineyard is a place where they've got to be good irrigation, good water, good sunlight, good land, good soil. It's to be a place of for a fruitful harvest. And this owner, he, he gives this tree a section, of fertile ground, a good place to grow. Because of the presence of the tree, the grapes could not grow under its shade because they need sunlight. This tree had every advantage to grow and produce fruit. The tree was given time. Three seasons have passed since its planting. And each year the owner had patiently come and, and looked under the leaves to find fruit and found nothing. This tree had been afforded mercy and forbearance. It had been shown, it had been shown to it and yet it was still fruitless. It had been given space to produce and nothing came of it. Now there's a few ways to look at what Jesus is saying to these hearers and to us today. The first and primary t- interpretation is concerning his immediate listeners who were, who were giving their ear to him some 2,000 years ago. Israel is numerous times in the Bible compared to be a fig tree, also a vine as well, vineyard. They are considered in Scripture as the planting of the Lord. They've been given every advantage to produce fruit unto God. They have been given the revelation of God, the oracles of God. They've been given the prescription to worship God, how to please God. They have been given, they've been given the presence of God in the temple. They have even been given the, the God in the flesh presence in, in Jesus Christ the Messiah. They've been given the infallible proofs of His ministry, His miracles, His works, his, uh, all the things that He had done, His healings. His declarations of his of his uh, de- of his designation as the Messiah, God being his Father. Notice that the parable specifies specifically points out that there had been three years, three seasons. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that when you look at Jesus' ministry somewhere around that we're looking at around three years, three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Devoted to Him and probably at this time could well have been three years had passed since Jesus began to teach since the kickoff of His ministry when He gathered His disciples together around Him. Three years of His ministry and yet there was no fruit. And yet there was no turning as John the Baptist had called them to do. There was no turning as Jesus Himself echoed the message of John in to repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand and yet as a nation as a whole they had not turned they had not come to him there was no acceptance of Jesus as a Messiah as a matter of fact in a few months they're gonna the, the uh, they're bearing oh this will be so great their bearing would be so great that they will take this Jesus, the Son of God, and have Him nailed to a cross as they spit and revile Him. Can you imagine the frustration of the Heavenly Father? I've given you so much. I've given you such a space. So many infallible proofs to receive my Son. And yet the owner comes and sees the barrenness, the, 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 the bland, empty, bone-dry barrenness of the crucifixion of his son. We can also see how easily this parable applies to the world around us, humanity. Bible scholar R.C. Ryle said the primary application of this parable must not shut out the secondary one. It was meant for individuals as well as for the Jewish people. Another commentator wrote the fig tree is the nation of Israel, but the individual application must not be eliminated. We cannot say that He's just talking to those first century Jews. If you take that route, then you're losing a lot of the New Testament and you're gutting what Jesus firmly teached, what has been taught for two millennia in the Christendom. To apply this parable further is to note that humankind has been privileged above all the created order. They are set utterly unique in status in the animal world. We have a sense of morality, of right and wrong, the ability to reason on the highest of levels. We are capable of worship, of a consciousness outside of ourselves. We can connect with God. The birds in the trees and the monkeys in the jungle and the... They cannot connect and worship God. We alone have a a sense in which we can connect with the divine. We're capable of worship, a consciousness outside of ourselves. And we, as well as the Jews of Jesus' day, we have the revelation of God, the gospel of Christ. All of these are known throughout 90% of the population of the world. Yet, the owner of the God of heaven, and he's coming and looking upon the branches of humanity, and he finds no fruit. What kind of fruit is God looking for from humanity in general? I, I, I think about uh, uh, Jesus had just told these listeners in pre- the previous chapter, in Luke chapter 12 listen to this, but to he that knew not, And did commit things worthy of stripes? Shall he be beaten with few stripes? For unto whomsoever is uh, much is given, of him much is required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. To um, to to much. If much has been given, much is required. So you can set aside that ten percent that have not the revealed Word of God in their language. There are unreached people groups and there are people in this world today, this moment, this hour, that know not the gospel. They have no idea that Jesus came in the flesh. And it's been 2,000 years. But yet, we cannot neglect the fact that we've been given much. You're not in the dark. This area of Trenton, Georgia, and Georgia in general, the Southeast, the United States, we're not in the dark. We have a rich heritage of the the revelation of God's word preached throughout the land. We have no excuse not to have fruit. What does God require from humanity? Although declared to the Jewish nation, I believe it well could reflect the fruit that God requires of this world. Deuteronomy 10.2, now Israel, what doth the Lord require of thee but to fear God? Fear the Lord thy God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Man, that's a good summary of what God's not only looking for the Jewish people, but from the world as a whole. To love God, to appreciate the blessings of common grace, to worship God, to sing the, of His goodness, to testify of His great name, to trust Him, to obey Him, to serve Him, to emulate His character in their lives. But for the lion's share of humanity, this fruit is missing. Let me make a further application before we leave. Notice there is a sense in which we can apply this to the local church. To faith, community church. We can apply it to us. You know, you know as much as I do that you can receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. We can be born again on our way to heaven, stamped and ready to go, and be producing no fruit to the pleasure of God. In John 15, in Jesus, some of Jesus' final words to his disciples, he talked about his desire, his longing to see them produce fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. Notice the progression. Notice in that you see the disease, the, the degrees of fruit bearing. When we peruse the pages of the New Testament Gospel and the epistles, we can begin to see what fruit God wants from us that know Him. Paul prayed that the Colossians would be fruitful unto every good work. The Hebrew author talks about peaceable fruit of righteousness. He also talks about the fruit of our lips being praise to our God fruit fruit from my lips fruit from my hands fruit from my life the fruit of loving one another as Christ what was that the commandment i give you this commandment that you love one another as i have loved you that you love one another to, To gossip the gospel to others around us. To offer ourselves a living sacrifice in the altar of devotion to God. To be transformed both inwardly and outwardly by the word of God. The fruit of the church is to exceed that of the expectation of the world. Too much that is given. We've been given the glorious gospel and embraced it. What have we produced in the successive years Year after year after year, He comes and looks fruit as years fly by. Is there fruit? Am I making fruit? To love God, to worship God, to desire God, to trust and obey God. And then there's the Galatians 5. There's a laundry list of fruits. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith meekness temperance these are what are to be found when God looks at faith community church is he finding it that's the question of the day when he picks up the leaves of your life of my life of even greater inspection what is he finding in each case the Jews the human creation in general and the church at large there is an owner a creator God who is presently searching for fruit and finding none. The failure to produce fruit after such an extended period of time is inexcusable. He has been patient. He has been long-suffering. He has come again and again and his hopes are dashed and his patience is wearing thin insomuch that he calls for the tree, Cut it out! Cut it away! Why Cumbereth it the ground. His reasoning is that this tree is taking up resources that could be used in other plants that do produce fruit. It is using up the nutrients and the moisture of the soil that could be better used in grapes in the vineyard. The prospect of these words is frightening. Cut it down. Remove it, the owner says. The words remove means to Cut it out from. Separate it out from my vineyard. Get it away. Put it away. To the Jewish hearers, before Jesus, this thread is played out in history. And we'll talk about a lot about that next week and what took place. But you know as well as I do, That there was great judgment coming in 70 A.D. For these hearers, except you repent, you'll perish. I have no doubt that some of these very hearers, their blood ran down the streets of Jerusalem when when Titus came through and sacked the city of Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said in the preceding verses, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Perish to be cut down to be entered into the fire. The Bible is clear that for those who do not trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and who do not repent and believe the gospel, there is no hope. There is no escape from the judgment of God. For us that sit here today, who I presume, and that may be a shaky presumption, I don't know, who I presume know Jesus Christ, in saving faith, have believed upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to the saving of their souls, this judgment upon fruitlessness should cause us to pause and to take stock of spiritual production in our own lives. The epistle of 1 John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, made it clear, said it twice in its context of sin. There is a sin unto death. I may not understand everything that he's talking about there, but he does make it clear. It's nothing to be toyed with. It's nothing to be messed with. To be entangled with sin as a born-again child of God carries with it the threat of death, removal from this life. Brother Ronnie, you preaching that I can lose my salvation? Absolutely not. But as 1 Corinthians says that some can be, enter into that great uh, the, the, uh, the, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ and pass through those fires to see what works remain and nothing but wood, hay and stubble come on the other side and Paul said, as Job, to be saved as by fire by the skin of our teeth enter in to God's presence. This call, this is, this is true for the church, churches as well. You recall the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter number 2. I think one of the first things that we did as a series were those letters in the book of Revelation. These church... Uh, the, the church that had... You remember it, the church of Ephesus that had lost its first love? They were doctrinally sound. They were morally fit. And the luscious fruit that God sought, love for Jesus Christ, which was poured out in their first works, was gone. He said... You have lost your first love. Repent. Go back and do the first works. The works that were poured out out of love for God. That's that luscious fruit he was looking for. Again, repent or perish is the call of Jesus to Revelation in Revelation chapter number 2 to the church of Ephesus and it's the call to faith community church here in 2023. Don't let this application fall on deaf ears in this church I don't know if you've noticed or not but sometimes it feels like we're hanging on by a thread by a thread I don't know what is involved in that whether it's poor leadership on my part as a pastor, where it is a general consensus of lethargy and and no desire and no fruit, a stagnancy in our love, a preoccupation with what the world and everything around it. I'm just as guilty, I'm just as guilty. A preoccupation with everything else in the world, and we're not bearing fruit. Is it a disobeying? Of the priorities of the New Testament church, whatever the case, we are called to take stock, to do some spiritual inventory. Inventory time is of the essence. As far as the Father is concerned, the axe is laid to the root. We're talking, we're taking up valuable space that God could use to produce fruit in, in other people, in other places, in other service. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, said this profound statement. The serious nature of these owners' words. Trees that bring not forth fruit must be cut down. And sinners who bring not forth repentance, faith, and holiness must die. It is only a matter of time as to whether or not the vineyard shall be cleared of the encumbrance of barren trees it is but a matter of time as it to when the world shall be delivered from the burdensome presence of barren souls. There is a time for te- felling fruitless trees, there is an appointed season for hewing down and casting into the fire the useless sinner. And I think that lays right over as well into the church. I'm not talking about the fires of hell, but I am talking about it. take that candlestick. Snuff it, out. cut it away. Why cumbereth it the ground? Does God look at us and see us taking up useless space on two five five zero new home drive? Does God come and say, "I wish it is my desire that that place be wiped off the map"? because I have come time and time and time again. I found nothing. No fruit. No fruit. I'm going to stop right here in this exposition because I want to come back next week. But I want to remind you that this is not the end of the story. When he said cut it down, there was someone that interrupted there was someone that interceded just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. We have someone interceding for not only the soul and the life and the, and the, and the, the project of spiritual holiness that is the life of Ronnie Brown and Carrie Brown and every person in this church, but for the church as a whole. Jesus, intercede. Don't take that candlestick. Give it another year. Let me do things. Let me work in there. And if if it does, good. But if it doesn't, no. Cut it down. God is here this morning. And He's lifting leaves, searching for fruit. If you're here today and there's no fruit of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, come believe on Him. Repent about faith. Stop looking at everybody else and their problems and making determinations about everybody else in the world. And draw a circle around yourself and say, It's me, God. I'm the problem. I need to get right with God. I need to be saved. Repent and believe Christ by laying, by faith, laying hold of the redemption prize. Jesus paid on the cross for your sin. But for you that are saved, there are more fruits. Are there more fruits of the flesh than there are the fruits of the Spirit? You remember the fruits of the... You know, before in Galatians, before He gave us the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, temperance. Before He gave that, He gave the fruits of the flesh. Listen. Hatred, wrath, strife, envyings, drunkenness. I, I wonder... Are are there more fruits of the flesh than there are fruits of the spirit? If that's the case, you ought to repent. Earnestly seek God that He might work a work in your heart to produce fruit that pleases Him, that is the pleasure of God. It is high time for all of us to do some heart inspection, to be uh, not to be gazing upon the Christian world as a whole and saying, Well, Brother Ronnie, you know the time. Here it is. Here it is. Well, Brother Ronnie, you know. You know, you know the world in which we live. Uh, love for God's just gone. It's just, hey, what we're, here, what we're experiencing here, par for the course. Brother Ronnie, it's just the way it is in these day, late days. Nobody cares about God. Nobody, nobody wants to hear the gospel anymore. Brother Ronnie, you know, you usually be thankful for, for what's here, you know. And, 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 and that's, that's about it. That's par for the course. That's what to be expected. Are we to sit and to accept that? Are we to continually cast our judgment upon the, the, the tepid nature of the Christian world as a whole and say, well, we're just, we're just like everybody else. There's no problems here. Come on, Brother Rodney. no problem with me. I, I'm here, aren't I? Why are you beating on me this morning? I brought my big Bible. I came and sang. I, I did all... Brother Ronnie, why are you beating on me this morning? The reality is, is that we can, stick, we can stick pictures of fruit all over us and look like we are the most fruitful thing you've ever seen. But you ain't going to fool God. You ain't going to fool God. We must have a great heart inspection to not gaze upon these things around us and make up excuse after excuse after excuse but to look at ourselves and our hearts. Except ye repent. Both to these hearers and to the church of Ephesus, you repent or you'll perish. Or I'll remove the candlestick. I don't believe I can lose my salvation. I believe I'm part of the purpose, the work of God. And that work will be completed until the day of Jesus Christ. But I don't want to. I don't want to be cut. I don't want to be set on a shelf. I don't want to not pleasure and please the God that did so much for me and shed his blood for me. Listen, heart inspection this morning. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm starting right here. God, I want to produce fruit. And I'm glad next week we'll look at the things that the dresser does and can do to bring about fruit in my life. But God, I'm concerned. I'm concerned about it. I'm going to listen to what you said. And I'm not going to point to the outside. I'm going to point to the inside. I want to come to grips. I want to see what you see. Help us to see what you see in our lives. Help us to course correct. God, make us fruitful here in Faith Community Church. Make us something that would be a delight and a pleasure to you. Not a reminder of fruitlessness, Father. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Page number 375 in our text. 375. Have thine own way, Lord. Oh, let let that owner have his way right now. Let him say what he wants to say. Go ahead, Brother Roger. Have thine own way. 375, one, maybe two verses. If God dealt with your heart, whether at your seat or at this altar, you clear up a spot and say, God, what? Put your finger on it. I want to bear fruit. I don't want to be stunned and disappointing to my God.